Section 15 of The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ava Stays. The Street of Our Lady of the Fields, Part 5 and 6. 5. The month passed quickly for Hastings, and left few definitive impressions after it. It did leave some, however. One was a painful impression of meeting Mr. Bladen on the Boulevard de Capucines, in company with a very pronounced young person whose laugh dismayed him, and when at last he escaped from the café where Mr. Bladen had hauled him to join them in a book, he felt as if the whole boulevard was looking at him and judging him by his company. Later, an instinctive conviction regarding the young person with Mr. Bladen sent the hot blood into his cheek and he returned to the pension in such a miserable state of mind that Miss Bing was alarmed and advised him to conquer his homesickness at once. Another impression was equally vivid. One Saturday morning, feeling lonely, his wanderings about the city brought him to the Gare Saint-Lazare. It was early for breakfast, but he entered the Hotel Terminus and took a table near the window. As he wheeled about to give his order, a man passing rapidly along the aisle collided with his head, and looking up to receive the expected apology, he was met instead by a slap on the shoulder and a hearty, "'What the deuce are you doing here, old chap?' It was Rowden, who seized him and told him to come along. So, mildly protesting, he was ushered into a private dining room where Clifford, rather red, jumped up from the table and welcomed him with a startled air which was softened by the unaffected glee of Rowden and the extreme courtesy of Elliot. The latter presented him to three bewitching girls who welcomed him so charmingly and seconded Rowden in his demand that Hastings should make one of the party that he consented at once. While Elliot briefly outlined the projected excursion to the La Roche, Hastings delightedly ate his omelette and returned the smiles of encouragement from Cecile and Colette and Jacqueline. Meantime, Clifford, in a bland whisper, was telling Rowden what an ass he was. Poor Rowden looked miserable until Elliot, divining how affairs were turning, frowned on Clifford and found a moment to let Rowden know that they were all going to make the best of it. You shut up, he observed to Clifford. It is fate, and that settles it. It's Rowden, and that settles it, murmured Clifford, concealing a grin, for after all, he was not Hastings' wet nurse. So it came about that the train which left the Gare Saint-Lazare at 9.15 a.m. stopped a moment in its career towards Haver and deposited it at the Red Roof Station of La Roche. A merry party, armed with sunshades, trout rods, and one cane carried by the non-combatant Hastings. Then, when they established their camp in a grove of sycamores, which bordered the little river Apt, Clifford, the acknowledged master of all that pertained to sportsmanship, took command. You, Rowden, he said, divide your flies with Elliot and keep an eye on him, or else he'll be trying to put on a floating sinker, prevent him by force from grubbing about for worms. Elliot protested, but was forced to smile in general laugh. You make me ill, he asserted. Do you think this is my first trout? I shall be delighted to see your first trout, said Clifford, and dodging a flying hook hurled with intent to hit, proceeded to sort and equipped three slender rods, destined to bring joy and fish to Cecile, Colette, and Jacqueline. With perfect gravity, he ornamented each line with four split shot, a small hook, and a brilliant quill float. "'I shall never touch the worms,' announced Cecile with a shudder. 
Jacqueline and Colette hastened to sustain her, and Hastings pleasantly offered to act in the capacity of a general baiter and take her off of fish. But Cecile, doubtless fascinated by the gaudy flies in Clifford's book, decided to accept lessons from him in the true art, and presently disappeared up the ept with Clifford in tow. Elliot looked doubtfully at Colette. I prefer gudgeons, said the damsel with decision, and you and Monsieur Rowden may go away when you please. May they not, Jacqueline? Certainly, responded Jacqueline. Elliot, undecided, examined his rod and reel. You've got your reel on the wrong side up, observed Rowden. Elliot wavered and stole a glance at Colette. I, I have almost decided to, uh, not to flip the flies about just now, he began. There's a pole that Cecile laughed. Don't call it a pole, corrected Rowden. Rod, then, continued Elliot, and started off in the wake of the two girls, but was promptly collared by Rowden. No, you don't. Fancy a man fishing with a float and sinker when he has a fly rod in his hand. You come along. Where the placid little ep flows down between its thickets to the Sienne, a grassy bank shadows the haunts of the Grudgeon and on at this bank sat Colette and Jacqueline, and chattered and laughed and watched the swerving of the scarlet quills while Hastings, his hat over his eyes, head on a bank of moss, listened to their soft voices, and gallantly unhooked the small and indignant gudgeon when a flash of a rod and half-suppressed scream announced a catch. The sunlight filtered through the leafy thickets, awakening to song the forest birds. Magpies and spotless black and white flirted about, alighting near by with a hop and bound and twitch of tail. Blue and white jays with rosy breasts shrieked through the trees, and a low-sailing hawk wheeled among the fields of ripening wheat, putting to flight flocks of twittering hedge birds. Across the sun, a gold dropped on the water like a plume. The air was pure and still. Scarcely a leaf moved. Sounds from a distant farm came faintly, the shrill of cockcrow and dull bang. Now and then, a stream tug with big, raking smoke pipe bearing the name Juep 27 plowed up the river, dragging its interminable train of barges, or a sailboat dropped down with the current toward sleepy Rowan. A faint, fresh odor of earth and water hung in the air, and through the sunlight orange-tipped butterflies danced above the marsh grass. Soft, velvety butterflies flapped through the mossy woods. Hasting was thinking of Valentine. It was two o'clock when Elliot strolled back, and, frankly admitting that he had eluded Rowden, sat down beside Colette and prepared to doze with satisfaction. "'Where are your trout?' said Colette severely. They still live, murmured Elliot, and went fast asleep. Rowden returned shortly after, and casting a scornful glance at the slumbering one, displayed three crimson flecked trout. And that smiled Hastings lazily. That is a holy end to which the faithful plod, the slaughter of these small fish with a bit of silk and feather. Rowden disdained to answer him. Colette caught in another gudgeon, and awoke Elliot, who protested and gazed about for the lunch baskets as clifford and cecile came up demanding instant refreshment cecile's skirts were soaked and her gloves torn but she was happy and clifford dragging out a two-pound trout stood still to receive the applause of the company where the deuce did you get that demanded elliot 
Cecile, wet and enthusiastic, recounted the battle, and then Clifford eulogized her powers with the fly, and, in proof produced from his creel, a defunct chub, which he observed just missing being a trout. They were all very happy at luncheon, and Hastings was voted charming. He enjoyed it immensely. Only it seemed to him at moments that flirtations went further in France than in Millbrook, Connecticut, and he thought that Cecile might be a little less enthusiastic about Clifford, that perhaps it would be quite as well if Jacqueline sat further away from Rowden, and that possibly Colette could have, for a moment at least, taken her eyes from Elliot's face. Still he enjoyed it except when his thoughts drifted to Valentine, and then he felt that he was very far away from her. La Roche is at least an hour and a half from Paris. It is also true that he felt a happiness, a quick heartbeat when, at eight o'clock that night, the train which bore them from La Roche rolled into Gare St. Lazare, and he was once more in the city of Valentine. "'Good night,' they said, pressing about him. "'You must come with us next time.' He promised, and watched them, two by two, drift into the darkening city, and stood so long that, when again he raised his eyes, the vast boulevard was twinkling with gas jets through which the electrical lights stared like moons. 6. It was another quick heartbeat that he awoke next morning, for his first thought was of Valentine. The sun already gilded the towers of Notre Dame, the clatter of the workmen's sabots, awoke sharp echoes in the street below, and across the way a blackbird in pink almond tree was going into an ecstasy of trills. He determined to await Clifford for a brisk walk in the country, hoping later to beguile that gentleman into the American church for his soul's sake. He found Alfred, the gimlet-eyed, washing the asphalt walk which led to the studio. Monsieur Elliot, he replied to the perfunctory inquiry, je ne sais pas. And Monsieur Clifford began hasting, somewhat astonished. Monsieur Clifford, said the concierge with fine irony, will be pleased to see you, as he retired early. In fact, he has just come in. Hastings hesitated while the concierge pronounced a fine eulogy on people who never stayed out all night, and then came battering at the lodge gate during hours which even the gendarme held sacred to sleep. He also discoursed eloquently upon the beauties of temperance, and took an ostentatious draught from the fountain in the court. "'I do not think I will come in,' said Hastings. "'Pardon, monsieur,' growled the concierge. "'Perhaps it would be well to see monsieur Clifford. He possibly needs aid. Me, he drives forth with hair-brushes and boots. It is a mercy if he has not set fire to something with his candle.' Hastings hesitated for an instant, but swallowing his dislike of such a mission, walked slowly through the ivy-covered alley and across the inner garden to the studio. He knocked. Perfect silence. Then he knocked again. And this time something struck the door from within with a crash. That, said the concierge, was a boot. He fit his duplicate key into the lock and ushered Hastings in. Clifford, in disordered evening dress, sat on the rug in the middle of the room. He held in his hand a shoe, and did not appear astonished to see Hastings. "'Good morning. Do you use Paris soap?' he inquired with a vague wave of his hand and a vaguer smile. Hastings' heart sank. "'For heaven's sakes,' he said. "'Clifford, go to bed.' Not while that, that Alfred pokes his shaggy head in here, and I have a shoe left. 
Hastings blew out the candle, picked up Clifford's hat and cane, and said, with an emotion he could not conceal, "'This is terrible, Clifford. I never knew you did this sort of thing.' "'Well, I do,' said Clifford. "'Where is Elliot?' "'Old chap,' returned Clifford, becoming maudlin. "'Providence, which feeds—' feeds er, sparrows and that sort of thing, watches over intemperate wanderer. Where is Elliot? But Clifford only wagged his head and waved his arm about. He's out there, somewhere about. Then, suddenly a feeling and desire to see his missing chum, lifted up his voice and howled for him. Hastings, thoroughly shocked, sat down on the lounge without a word. Presently, after shedding several scalding tears, Clifford brightened up and rose with great precaution. "'Old chap,' he observed, "'do you want to see a, a miracle? Well, here goes. I'm going to begin.' He paused, beaming at vacancy. "'A miracle,' he repeated. Hastings supposed he was alluding to the miracle of his keeping his balance and said nothing. "'I am going to bed,' he announced. Poor old Clifford's going to bed, and that's our miracle. And he did, with a nice calculation of distance and equilibrium, which would have wrung enthusiastic yells of applause from Elliot had he been there to insist in connoisseur. But he was not. He had not yet reached the studio. He was on his way, however, and smiled with magnificent condescension on Hastings, who, half an hour later, found him reclining upon a bench in the Luxembourg. He permitted himself to be aroused, dusted, and escorted to the gate. Here, however, he refused all further assistance, and bestowing a patronizing bow upon Hastings, steered a tolerably true course for the Rue Vervin. Hastings watched him out of sight, and then slowly retraced his steps towards the fountain. At first he felt gloomy and depressed, but gradually the clear air of the morning lifted the pressure from his heart, and he sat down on the marble seat under the shadows of the winged god. The air was fresh and sweet with perfume from the orange flowers. Everywhere pigeons were bathing, dashing the water over their iris-hued breasts, flashing in and out of the spray, or nestling almost to the neck along the polished basin. The sparrows, too, were abroad in force, soaking their dust-colored feathers in the limpid pool, and chirping with might and main. Under the sycamores which surrounded the duck-pond opposite the fountain of the Marie de Medici, the waterfowl cropped the herbage, or waddled in rows down the bank to impart on some solemn, aimless cruise. Butterflies, somewhat lame from a chilly's night repose under the lilac leaves, crawled over and over the white flocks, or took a rheumatic flight towards some sun-warm shrub. The bees were already busy among the heliotrope, and one or two gray flies with brick-color eyes sat in a spot of sunlight beside the marble seat, or chased each other about, only to return again to the spot of sunshine, and rub their forelegs, exulting. The sentries paced briskly before the painted boxes, pausing at times to look toward the guardhouse for their relief. They came at last, with a shuffle of feet and click of bayonets. The word was passed, the relief fell out, and away they went, crunch, crunch, across the gravel. A mellow chime floated from the clock tower of the palace, the deep bell of St. Sulpice echoed the stroke. Hastings sat dreaming in the shadow of the god, and while he mused, somebody came and sat down beside him. At first, he did not raise his head. It was only when she spoke that he sprang up. 
You, at this hour. I was restless, I could not sleep. Then, in a low, happy voice, and you, at this hour. I, I slept, but the sun awoke me. I could not sleep, she said, and her eyes seemed, for a moment, touched with an indefinable shadow. Then, smiling, I am so glad. I seemed to know you were coming. Don't laugh. I believe in dreams. Did you really dream of, of me being here? I think I was awake when I dreamed it, she admitted. Then, for a time, they were mute, acknowledged by silence the happiness of being together. And after all, the silence was eloquent, for faint smiles and glances born of their thoughts crossed and recrossed until lips moved and words were formed, which seemed almost superfluous. What they said was not profound. Perhaps the most valuable jewel that fell from Hastings' lips bore direct reference to breakfast. I have not yet had my chocolate, she convinced. But what a material man you are. Valentine, he said impulsively. I wish, I do wish that you would, just for this once, give me the whole day, just for this once. Oh dear, she smiled. Not only material, but selfish. Not selfish, hungry, he said looking at her. A cannibal too, oh dear. Will you, Valentine? But my chocolate, take it with me. But déjeuner, together at St. Cloud. But I can't, together, all day, all day long. Will you, Valentine? She was silent. Only for this once. Again, that indefinable shadow fell across her eyes, and when it was gone, she sighed. Yes, together, only for this once. All day, he said, doubting his happiness. All day, she smiled, and oh, I am so hungry. He laughed, enchanted. What a material young lady it is. On the boulevard St. Michel, there was a cremery, painted white and blue outside, and a neat and clean as a whistle inside. The auburn-haired young woman, who speaks French like a native, and rejoices in the name of Murphy, smiled at them as they entered, and tossing a fresh napkin over the zinc tete-a-tete table, whisked before them two cups of chocolate and a basket full of crisp, fresh croissants. The primrose-colored pats of butter, each stamped with a shamrock in relief, seemed saturated with the fragrance of Normandy pastures. How delicious! They said in the same breath, and then laughed at the coincidence. With but a single thought, he began. How absurd! she cried with cheeks all rosy. I am thinking I'd like a croissant. So am I, he replied triumphant. That proves it. Then they had a quarrel, she accusing him of behavior unworthy of a child in arms, and he denying it and bringing countercharges until Mademoiselle Murphy laughed in sympathy, and the last croissant was eaten under a flag of truth. Then they rose, and she took his arm with a bright nod to Mademoiselle Murphy, who cried them a merry, Bonjour, madame, bonjour, monsieur, and watched them hail a passing cab and drive away. Do, Calisbeau, she sighed, afting a moment. Do they be married? I do not. Ma faut ill on bien l'air. The cab swung around the Rue de Medici and turned into the Rue Vaugiard, followed it to where it crosses the Rue de Rennes, and taking that noisy thoroughfare, drew up before the Gare Montparnasse. They were just in time for a train and scampered up the stairway and out to the cars as the last note from the starting gong rang through the arched station. The guards slammed the door to their compartment. A whistle sounded 
answered by a screech from the locomotive. The long train glided from the station faster, faster, and spread out into the morning sunshine. The summer wind blew in their faces from the open window and sent the soft hair dancing on the girl's forehead. We have the compartment to ourselves, said Hastings. She leaned against the cushioned window seat, her eyes bright and wide open, her lips parted. The wind lifted her hat and fluttered the ribbons under her chin. With a quick movement, she untied them, and, drawing a long hat-pin from her hat, laid it down on the seat beside her. The train was flying. The color surged in her cheeks, and, with each quick-drawn breath, her breath rose and fell under the cluster of lilies at her throat. Trees, houses, ponds danced by, cut by a mist of telegraph poles. Faster! Faster! she cried. His eyes never left her, but hers, wide open and blue as the summer sky, seemed fixed on something far ahead, something which came no nearer but fled before them as they fled. Was it the horizon, cut now by the grim fortress on the hill, now by the cross of a country chapel? Was it the summer moon, ghost-like, slipping through the vaguer blue above? Faster! Faster! she cried. Her parted lips burned scarlet. The car shook and shivered, and the field streamed by like an emerald torrent. He caught the excitement, and his face glowed. Oh! she cried, and with an unconscious movement caught his hand, drawing him to the window beside her. Look! Lean out with me! He only saw her lips move. Her voice was drowned in the roar of a trestle, but his hand closed in hers, and he clung to the sill. The window whistled in their ears. Not so far out! Valentine, take care! He gasped. Below, through the ties of the trestle, a broad river flashed into view and out again, as the train thundered along a tunnel, and, away once more through the freshest of green fields, the wind roared about them. The girl was leaning out from the window, and he caught her by the waist, crying, Not so far! But she only murmured, Faster! Faster! Away out of the city, out of land! Faster! Faster! Away out of the world! "'What are you saying on to yourself?' he said, but his voice was broken, and the wind whirled it back into his throat. She heard him, and turning from the window, looked down at his arm about her. Then she raised her eyes to his. The car shook, and the windows rattled. They were dashing through a forest now, and the sun swept the dewy branches with running flashes of fire.' He looked into her troubled eyes, and he drew her to him, and kissed the half-parted lips, and she cried out, a bitter, hopeless cry, Not that! Not that! But he held her close and strong, whispering words of honest love and passion, and when she sobbed, Not that! Not that! I have promised! You must! You must know! I am not worthy! In the purity of his own heart, her words were, to him, meaningless then, meaningless for ever after. Presently her voice ceased, and her head rested on his breast. He leaned against the windows, his ears swept by the furious wind, his heart in a joyous tumult. The forest was passed, and the sun slipped from behind trees, flooding the earth again with brightness. She raised her eyes and looked out into the world from the window. Then she began to speak, but her voice was faint, and he bent his head close to hers and listened. I cannot turn from you. I am too weak. You were long ago my master, master of my heart and soul. I have broken my word to one who trusted me, but I have told you all. What matters the rest? He smiled at her innocence. 
and she worshipped his. She spoke again. Take me or cast me away. What matters it? Now, with a word, you can kill me, and it might be easier to die than look upon happiness as great as mine. He took her in his arms. Hush, what are you saying? Look, look out at the sunlight, the meadows, and the streams. We shall be very happy in so bright a world. She turned to the sunlight. From the window, the world below seemed very fair to her. Trembling with happiness, she sighed. Is this the world? Then I have never known it. Nor have I. God forgive me, he murmured. Perhaps it was our gentle lady of the fields who forgave them both. End of section 15